December greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute. Hope everybody uh, had a great holiday weekend. Um, tonight, uh, we're honored to have with us uh, Professor Ying Zhu to discuss her new book, Hollywood in China, uh, Behind the Scenes of the World's Largest Movie Market, uh, which was recently published this earlier this year. Uh, through fascinating uh, vignettes, uh, Dr. Zhu reveals the century-long uh, relationship between uh, Hollywood and China for the very first time. Professor Ying Zhu is Professor Emeritus of the City University of New York's College of Staten Island and the Director of the Center for Film and Moving Image Research in the Academy of Film at Hong Kong Baptist University. Dr. Zhu is the recipient of a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, she is the author of four books, including Two Billion Eyes, The Story of China's Central Television, and uh, tonight's talk, uh, Hollywood in China, and both are published by the New Press. Uh, she is also the co-editor of six books, uh, including Soft Power with Chinese Characteristics, China's Campaign for Hearts and Minds. Uh, Dr. Zhu is also the uh, founder and chief editor of the peer-reviewed journal, Global Storytelling, Journal of Digital Marketing, uh, Digital and Moving Images. Uh, if you are interested in Dr. Zhu's past ARI talks, uh, she actually has uh, several available in the uh, on our website and YouTube channel, and you can watch those after this presentation uh, over the weekend. And please welcome uh, Dr. Ying Zhu. Well, thank you, and I'd like to, you know, of course, thank uh, ARI for inviting me to here to give the talk. Um, and for uh, Anthony to host the talk, to take care of all the logistics. So who, who, for those who have yet to come across the book, um, you know, here's the, the, the jacket for you to at least, uh, admire the, the, the cover design. And so that's, that's the picture. The, the book was almost 10 years in the making. And, and I kind of took my sweet time to obsessive compulsively comb through, uh, every single bit of research material, uh, probably, and very unlikely indulgence under, you know, the current sausage tuning, quantity-driven assessment culture of, of uh, our academia. Um, fortunately, I was not under uh, the stress of tenure and promotion, you know, been there, done that a long time ago. Uh, although I did stress out my editor at the New Press, uh, who had to tolerate a very prolonged process uh, while uh, rebuffing my demand to extend the word limit. The final product, though, uh, still at a 370-page long, which is actually too long, uh, is much leaner and lighter uh, after I kind of grungedly let go one-third of the uh, draft manuscript. And the unintended consequence of, of a prolonged process is that things do change when you let a decade uh, pass mm -hmm. by. Um, so the, the idea, um, of writing a book actually, you know what? Let me go back to, to this. So, so, so the idea of writing a book that parallels the origin and evolution of the American and Chinese film industries and also the interactions between the two started at this uh, history conference I participated in at Harvard in March 2013. Uh, a time when Dalian Wanda, uh, a film studio founded by the Chinese real estate tycoon Wang Jianling, uh, turned beleaguered major U.S. theater chain AMC, which he had acquired in May 
uh, a year before 2020, uh, 2012 to profit. Um, let's go to check out those, some of the, those dates. Now, in May the following year, uh, Wanda announced that the company would grow its business globally, including expanding into the European market. And then by September 2013, Wang Jianling had become China's richest person. Uh, the same month, Leonardo DiCaprio walked the red carpet as one of Wang's guests of honor at Wanda's ceremony, announcing a 4.9 billion Qingdao movie th- uh, studio. Sher uh, Bong Isaacs, the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Science, Arts and Sciences, was also uh, present at Wanda's um, ceremony. Wang Jianling kind of predicted at the opening that China's film market would become the world's biggest in five years. And fast forward to 2020, um, the COVID pandemic would shut down the global film market. And as the American film industry struggled, China managed to reboot its film market during the second part of uh, 2020 uh, while shutting out Hollywood pictures, uh, making 2020 one of the world's, uh, one of the worst year for Hollywood in China. And the same year, China officially overtook North America as the world's largest market. Um, Wang's prediction was off only by two years. Uh, and then in March 2021, an article from the South China Morning Post reported the dwindling appeal of U.S. entertainment programs among the younger generation of Chinese. And by June 2021, Wanda had largely retreated from the film industry, uh, film, uh, uh, film business overseas, having sold most of its shares at, in AMC amidst the theater chain's steep revenue decline as a result of the COVID lockdown in the U.S. And Wanda made a decidedly inward turn, returning to its home turf. And by fall 2021, you know, thanks to a sabbatical back home in New York, and I was finally able to uh, wrap up uh, the book. And by then, the Chinese and American films have grown far apart and become more distinct from each other, uh, even as the two industries have become ever more entangled. The collusion in business had continued, but the government, media, and public scrutiny from both sides made a film collaboration a hazardous proposition. And my my book basically parallels in, in broad stroke the origins and evolutions of the American and Chinese film industries and both of which had roots in commercial operations. Uh, Though the American film pioneers were mostly tied to the distribution exhibition businesses, while the Chinese film pioneers were a mixture of theater, cinema lovers, and and also merchants. Um, Early film industry in China pretty much emulated the American style studio model, even the censorship regimen. Uh, progressed in a similar fashion in China and in the U.S. And in fact, during the Republic era, the Chinese consulted his code, uh, the, the American censorship code, in devising its own censorship regulations. Um, the past diverged only during the uh, Mao era as the People's Republic of China forcefully converted the Chinese ministry 
from a private and decentralized model to a Soviet-style centralized and, and a state-subsidized model while banishing Hollywood from China altogether. And as I capture the major developmental phase of, of, of both industries, I pay special attention to the ups and downs of Sino-Hollywood entanglement and which have been under the sway of the larger political, economical, uh, economic culture and cultural forces, much of these in the name of uh, national interests. Um, and speaking of national interest, I begin the book by unpacking the linkage between film industries and national governments. Within the context of Sino-US, it actually took some lobbying effort from the film industries for both the Chinese and the US governments to see the potential of motion picture for uh, cultural influence, political persuasion, and consumer product promotion uh, in the case of, of the US, but not so much uh, in China. And once caught on, and uh, those governments sought to capitalize on the affective power uh, of cinema and film does emerge to be one of the most glamorous and, and effective, influ uh, effective influencers to use the uh, modern lexicon. Um, but the nature of the relationship between the industry and uh, the government differs. The US government up until the last US president came along uh, President Donald Trump came along, functioned mostly as a facilitator uh, for the growth and international expansion of the American film industry as it relished Hollywood's charm in showcasing the American lifestyle, pop culture, and consumer products. The Chinese governments, uh, both the KMT and the CCP, were more meddlesome, prone to content regulation but offered a little financial relief to the film industry uh, under the shadow of Hollywood, which consistently uh, outperformed the Chinese film on China's domestic turf. Uh, Hollywood's dominance in China during the Republic era put the beleaguered Nanjing government on defense. As captured in the book, the Chinese reacted passive-aggressively towards Hollywood's popularity and American films rampant China uh, offense on the image front, you know, for which Hollywood uh, it was guilty as charged, though nothing personal as the big boy Hollywood was an equal opportunity offender uh, or defender who managed to uh, kind of cavalierly offend images of many nation states as it crashed their domestic markets. Um, the People's Republic era would usher in a decidedly more uh, progressive uh, and proactive approach in eradicating the U.S. cultural presence, indeed banning Hollywood films all together during the Mao era. Um, so my book basically charts four major phases in the Sino-Hollywood relation dating back to um, 1897, the year when the first batch of U.S. motion pictures appeared in China, uh, being brought over by uh, James R. Cotton, seeing uh, here, an American photographer from New Jersey, uh, the birthplace of the American film industry. Ricardon screened a few Edison films, including Tsar Nicholas II, 
visiting Paris at a tea house in Shanghai. And he continued as a photographer in China and actually recorded the Boxer Rebellion of 1900. Hollywood came and Hollywood conquered, uh, not just in China, but all over the world. Um, just how dominant was Hollywood during the olden days? Now, um, most of us think about the international film trade in terms of how many domestic films are uh, released each year and what share of total box office receipts uh, go to foreign versus domestic films, uh, so on and so forth. However, in the early days, uh, a more common way to keep a tabs on the film trade was to simply tally up the total length of uh, the so-called exposed films each year. A raw measure to be sure, but one that served well enough um, in its time. In one of the books, uh, a film scholar, Carrie Seagrave, goes to this early record to compare length. And the numbers reveal an interesting footage race that began with entrants from around the world uh, competing on a um, very kind of a, a leveling playground until World War I intervened. Uh, the war hobbled film production nearly everywhere except the United States, allowing Hollywood to take the lead and run with it. In China, Hollywood took up, up to 80% of the market during the Republic era. And the, the funding of the PRC in 1949 and the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950 led to a wholesale ban on all things American, including Hollywood pictures, though the ban was not without trepidation from the party leaders who had, uh, you know, private misgivings about uh, an, an outright ban with the concern that such might uh, provoke an, an, an outcry from fans of uh, Hollywood pictures, particularly uh, in China's cosmopolitan uh, urban center, such as Shanghai. And it was a high time, of course, for the party to woo the urban dwellers uh, for the purpose of maintaining uh, stability in the newly founded People's Republic uh, of China. And the Yankee pictures served as, as pacifiers. Uh, one twist is that, though the official ban on Hollywood would last throughout the Mao era, uh, there were actually quite a number of Hollywood-led Western films circulating unofficially among the party's top entourage under direct, uh, the direct uh, control of Madame Mao, um, the wife of, of Jim Mao. And these films are called um, internal reference films, some of which were lavishly dubbed in Chinese under the auspice of Madame Mao, who was a one-time movie actress in Shanghai and a closeted fan of Hollywood classics. Uh, in the early 1970s, there were these semi-hushed overnight marathon screenings of internal reference films at government, including uh, military compounds, as incentives for people to sit through the multi-day marathon party meetings. And so popular were these films, the evening screenings from time to time uh, run up to seven and eight hours straight, a practice that way uh, predate what we now call binge watch. Let me go back to the previous slide, actually. 
Um, the third phase saw the triumphant return of Hollywood in the mid-1990s with the uh, overture from China and at a time when China's economic reform forced the previously state-subsidized film industry to earn commercial uh, living. Far from uh, soft landing, the industry stumbled, failing to make marketable pictures. Uh, movie theaters were shedding patrons to emergent competing entertainment options. Hollywood was called back to resuscitate the Chinese film market. And Hollywood came, and Hollywood performed to the task. Um, and China re revived the film industry by returning to the good old Hollywood model. The reversal of the Soviet model took some laborious effort, including kind of getting reacquainted with the, the Hollywood trademark. Um, Hollywood films were permitted to officially re-enter China by the late 1970s, when the country reopened its door to the outside. But the revenue-sharing blockbuster films were not allowed until uh, the mid-1990s. And upon returning, uh, Hollywood soon swept the Chinese market, quickly attracting an audiences back to the theaters. Uh, one point I, I emphasize in my book is that Hollywood films have triggered simultaneously uh, fascination, apprehension, um, resistance, and also competition uh, during both China's Republic era and the post-Mao uh, People's Republic era. And admiration uh, for the sheer kind of allure and the market prowess of Hollywood pictures, resistance for Hollywood's perceived historical injustice to the China image and, and also to China's, uh, to Hollywood's market dominance. And in the past few years, uh, competition and effort to draft Hollywood into serving China's uh, interest, particularly China's global image campaign, uh, notwithstanding the most recent chatter about decoupling. Uh, and the post-Mao return of Hollywood triggered the same euphoria mixed with fear and loathing. Uh, as the Chinese film industry grew stronger, China pushed back, using a number of restrictive measures to reduce Hollywood's China presence. As as uh, as as you know, uh, reflected in this chart, American-made films accounted for more than forty-eight percent of China's box office revenue ten years ago in uh, twenty twelve. The number came down to thirty-six percent in twenty sixteen, and the number plummeted to only twelve point three percent of China's uh, box office revenue by twenty twenty one, as China took over its own. Kind of domestic market, or rather took back its own domestic market, Hollywood's post-Mao honeymoon seems to have come to an end. There have been signs that Hollywood is pivoting away from films containing China elements, including uh, casting talents of, of Chinese heritage, particularly after the failure of, of these films. Uh, and, and I only include the four, uh, three of them, there are more. Uh, you know, in, in securing China releases, you know, these films are banning China for a variety of reasons. Um, the question frequently asked is, is whether Hollywood can afford to simply walk away from the Chinese market, right? 
and and the release of the Tom Cruise franchise, uh, Top Gun 2, over the summer is an interesting case to observe for uh, Hollywood without the Chinese market and funding. The film Top Gun uh, 2 was actually initially co-financed by the Chinese internet company Tencent. A trailer in 2019 saw our hero Maverick wearing a bomber jacket with a patch that was missing the image of the ROC flag seen in the first film, which caused a stir. Paramount Pictures was called out for pandering to China. However, the ROC flag was restored uh, in the film's final version, released uh, this year, uh, just over the past summer. So what happened between 2019 and 2022? Well, amidst the, the deteriorating Sino-US relation, Tencent withdrew its funding by late 2019. The para, and, and Paramount has since came to terms with the impossibility of getting a China green light uh, for film, for a film showcasing the U.S. military. With the pressure of the China market gone, the studio promptly restored the ROC flag. The film had its wide release globally, excluding China, grossing uh, one billion in box office and counting, actually. Uh, and to become the highest grossing film of 2020. <laughs> the case of Top Gun, uh, Top Gun 2 suggests that uh, Hollywood can survive without the Chinese market if it recalibrates its blockbuster uh, budget and box office expectations and make it do with a final tally without the China uh, revenue. In fact, owing to the domestic performance of Top Gun, Maverick, another blockbuster film, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, uh, both of which were denied China release, uh, North America is poised to be on track to reclaim the world's biggest theatrical movie market in 2022, as we speak this year. And some in the United States foresee a return to a business model where the U.S. studios make mid-budget uh, uh, movies targeting at American adults rather than mega-budget films aiming to please falling markets. As uh, Sony Bunch puts it, uh, film in which Chinese filmmakers make films for Chinese audiences and in which American films make films for Western audiences isn't worst thing that could happen. Um, Sony Bunch might have a point. I, for one, am kind of rather jaded by Hollywood's theme park-like uh, superhero franchising movies seen as the winning formula for the global market. And I have Martin Scorsese by my side. Some of you probably have come across this article where um, uh, uh, Martin Scorsese expressed his displeasure of uh, these Marvel uh, superhero movies. So maybe, just maybe, the decoupling will help to ring in the Marvels and the alike. Maybe the loss of the Chinese market will allow the studios to tone down budget and make a few more A-class films of genuine 
human touch and, and, and domestic relevance. In China, um, apart from blockbuster Hollywood films, Chinese filmmakers uh, have been making uh, mainstream commercial films for Chinese audiences that are enormously popular in China. Um, and to better check the pulse of, of Chinese cinema or of China for that matter, and for those China watchers, it behooves us to actually pay uh, attention to the popular Chinese mainstream films instead of lightly dismiss them in the kind of purity uh, uh, contest for artistic quality or uh, political provocation. Over the years, the Chinese film industry has cultivated a unique brand of holiday movies, for instance, uh, the so-called uh, Chinese New Year films uh, that have resonated with the Chinese audiences. And chapter seven of my book uh, captures some of these uh, um, uh, these films. Lost in Russia, for instance, uh, see the post here, Lost in Russia, uh, the, the Chinese name of this uh, movie is called Ma, meaning Mother Awkward, uh, a Chinese New Year film about a shared road trip between an adult son and an Asian woman uh, was extremely popular when it came out in 2020. The film was initially slated for theatrical release as a New Year celebration film on January uh, 24, 2020, but COVID intervened. And it was instead uh, released the following day on the internet for free streaming, a welcome respite, you know, for Chinese viewers who are stuck home in, in home confinement. Uh, Lost in Russia was streamed within two days, more than 600 million times. Uh, so, so a really extremely popular film. And the Spring Festival, of course, was its focus on kinship. Family reunion, family gathering is a kind of optimum time for a sentimental film about family bonding and overcoming the generational gap. Um, the film features Ivan, the adult son, who uh, kind of grudgingly and by accident boards a Russian-bound trans-Siberian train to accompany her strong-willed mother on a trip to Moscow to fulfill uh, her previously foiled dream of performing with her choir at the Moscow Grand Theater. Uh, the journey gives mother and son plenty of time to bicker and also bond as he deals with his, his kind of own disintegrating uh, marriage. Uh, the character Ivan was played by Xu Zheng, uh, a popular TV comedian who came to prominence uh, when he directed his first two uh, previous Lost films, Lost in Thailand, seen here, Lost in Thailand, and Lost in Hong Kong. Uh, two happy-go-lucky road movies that kind of celebrate tourism, self-discovery, and, and, and human bonding. Uh, it was it is worth noting that uh, the Lost in Hong Kong, the middle uh, one, pays homage to the golden age of filmmaking in Hong Kong. Uh, and the road trip serves as an occasion for Xi Zheng to showcase his, his knowledge and also affection uh, for Canton Pop, including Hong Kong cinema, which was trendy and, and ubiquitous to Xi's generation coming of age in, in the PRC. But the timing could not be worse. The film is about 
adventures or rather misadventures of a group of Chinese tourists in Hong Kong. At the time, Hong Kong was overwhelmed by the Chinese tourists and it was shot in Hong Kong during the Umbrella Movement. If Hong Kong was a misfire five years earlier, amidst attention, Russia was a nice respite in 2020 amidst kind of escalating Sino-US tension and, and during the kind of short window of opportunity before the Ukraine war. Um, the film pays tribute to Russia for the kind of nostalgic glow of music and songs of the Soviet era, uh, which form part of Xu's upbringing and his mother's kind of memory and imagination. The Russia in their imagination is the one kind of they were exposed to during Mao's era through Soviet films. I wanted to share with you a couple of scenes here. So the first thing uh, <clears throat> captures well the kind of a mother and, and son bonding and, and the Soviet link of the mother's generation. Um, now earlier during, so the, the entire story is just a role movie. The entire story is about how they uh, overcome various obstacles trying to uh, make way to Moscow to get to uh, the, the most grand theater to perform, right? So they were constantly delayed by a number of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, obstacles. And so so in this thing, they were just so exhausted, they were taking a break. You know, they, they need to cross large kind of frozen lake, but they were just kind of take a little short break. And earlier uh, during the story, we were made aware that Ivan's mother and father uh, had, had divorced. Uh, let's actually go play the thing, So turns out uh, she's name Ivan comes from the Soviet war film, anti-war film, Ivan's Childhood, uh, which uh, Jean-Paul Sartre actually praised as one of the most beautiful film he had ever seen. The film tells the experiences of, of a, an orphan boy named Ivan during World War II. It was made during the Khrushchev Thaw and it examined kind of human cause of war and refused to, to glorify the war experience uh, during the Stalin era. And the film actually won Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival in 1962. And it was selected as the Soviet entry for the best foreign uh, language films at the 36th Academy Awards, uh, but was not accepted as a nominee. It made its way to China as one of the international uh, internal reference films for criticism uh, during Mao's era. Um, so there's a kind of interesting um, uh, kind of entangled relationship with Russia here. Now, I wanted to show you uh, the clim climatic scene of the mother performing. You know, they eventually, they made into a belatedly made into the uh, Moscow theater, and and she got onto stage. She started to perform initially kind of tentative after uh, and 
and but but um but later then she kind of relaxed that she started really start to sing and so what she was singing is is a widely circulated Russian song during the Soviet era uh, by the name oh the Kalina flowers are in bloom about a young girl's love uh, for a boy the song comes from uh, the Soviet film Cossacks of Cuba and and it was performed in the original film by a group of female singers on stage, uh, like uh, we, what you'll be seeing eventually, a group of choir members got onto the stage to perform together with the mother. And the song was extremely popular in China uh, during Mao's era. Uh, you know, again, this this is a climatic scene. And, and the mother got on, it's a, she's essentially also singing her own life, right? So we learn a bit and piece about the broken marriage, and the first love, and so on and so forth. So um, the climax, and, and it leads to a quick resolution. The son and a mother return to Shanghai, uh, and kind of life goes on, um, so on and so forth. Now, by making a film paying homage to Russia in 2020, she actually lucked out. Can you imagine you know, the film being made today uh, amidst the Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And, and a film reminiscing about encounters in Xinjiang, right? So earlier during that sequence, the mother talked about how she met her uh, uh, future husband in, in, in Xinjiang. Uh, so, so, so this actually only further attests to uh, the politics of filmmaking and film reception. Now, the overriding motif in the Lost franchise is, is, the, is the notion of self-discovery which is achieved through uh, characters embarking on journeys in, in pairs. Uh, relationships uh, evolve over time and eventually transform uh, both characters. The main characters in the Love Trilogy, uh, the Lost Trilogy, are seen as trapped in China's full-blow capitalist rat race where success is defined by money and power. The male lead is forced to take stock of his, his own core values as he tries to balance the competing demands of money, power, uh, career and marriage, or human connections. You know, a kind of familiar theme of greed versus love happiness that have been explored in numerous uh, Hollywood films since the dawn of cinema. Uh, Xu's films captured well the existential crisis of Chinese elites whose wealth, mobility, and pseudo-intellectual superiority uh, foreshot of, of bringing happiness. As the contemporary Chinese bongoi has it, uh, there was no money, but hope is, uh, uh, you know, but, but hope in, in the past. Uh, there was no money but hope in the past, but uh, there's plenty of money, but no hope now. 
so it's interesting that films like this kind of resonated uh, among the Chinese audiences. Um, to, to wrap up, initially, kind of initiated almost a decade ago, my book started out by uh, invoking somewhat facetiously the term courtship. Now it's been kind of widely used to describe what I saw as a kind of a fitful relationship uh, that, however, tentative and antagonistic at times, a hot uh, brought two willing partners to the negoti uh, negotiating table um, for the common pursuit of prosperity and happiness measured by the tangible box office receipts and by the less tangible notion of cultural influence. And my focus is on the kind of machinations behind uh, art and artifacts, including the economy and politics of filmmaking. Um, the Sino-Hollywood relation was initially more of an apprenticeship, as the two parties were by no means equal in finance, technology, and popular appeal, while guilty of flooding the global market with, with its brand of entertainment at expenses of local uh, culture industries. Uh, Hollywood has always, you know, peddled softly uh, with plenty of charm and delight, though not always with taste. Uh, it has nevertheless won the hearts and minds of the Chinese audiences. Hollywood's global megastars in the likes of, um, say, Tom Cruise can make even the parochial American patriotism look very cool, cosmopolitan, and, and even universal. On the other hand, the business of filmmaking is, is booming in China, but not necessarily the cross-cultural appeal and global recognition of the Chinese state-sponsored uh, films. Oops. When it comes to the competition of rival propaganda war films, Top Gun, Top Gun's Maverick has earned 760 million outside of North America without a China release. But its counterpart, uh, the Chinese domestic um, blockbuster Battle at Lake Changjing Second has brought in less than 1 million from beyond China's borders. So numbers do not lie. Though it continues to lag in global popularity and recognition, China's robust domestic market has emboldened the Chinese film industry to challenge Hollywood at a time when the U.S. domestic politics put the U.S. studios of China dealings uh, under scrutiny. Uh, but I am not forecasting the end of Hollywood in China. China has both the market to sell and the cash to for investment. Uh, it would be hard uh, for dealmakers to simply walk away despite the scrutiny from the lawmakers and the media. Uh, deals will be made, but more surreptitiously and in a much more uh, low-key fashion. Just in, uh, in August, the summer, Later summer, James Cameron kind of treated executives from China Film Group uh, to a, a screening of footage from his new Avatar project in progress at the time. And interestingly, it was China Daily that that broke the news. And of course, James's uh, uh, James Cameron's movies were enormously popular uh, in China, including Titanic and the first Avatar. And the, you know, a few, only a few days ago, we learned that uh, Avatar, the new Avatar has secured the Chinese, uh, China release, um, which is, a, a, you know, this is a real kind of a, 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 a real case, uh, in, 
for Hollywood studios now to gain this kind of access in China. Um, so in the end, the cycle of boom and bust remains the norm in the movie business. The lackluster reception of recent Hollywood films might only be a phase. Uh, it is really hard to gauge the actual Chinese audience's reaction to Hollywood films these days, it, you know, kind of given the increasingly restricted access um, and, um, uh, kind of imposed by the Chinese government. And, you know, governments, U.S. and in Chinese, tend to underestimate the intelligence of the audiences. Audiences do gravitate towards films of personal connections, not necessarily films promoted by the governments or the studios. Um, so that said, my book nevertheless serves as a swan song to an era of Hollywood fetish in China and vice versa. Not the end of Hollywood in China, but the Hollywood fetish in China. The relationship is going through a period of, of a reset um, and however you want to call it, uh, maybe a midlife crisis. And, but all this is contingent upon the larger kind of Sino-US relation, of course. And so, so the main takeaway is that the situation continues to be fluid and history more often than not goes kind of cyclical and tends to repeat itself. So, so the kind of uh, um, pull and push dynamic uh, will continue. I think that I should stop here and, and to kind of let's Hear some comments or questions. Uh, Professor Zhu, is very interesting. You did bring in Top Gun Maverick uh, into the conversation, a most recent thing, and uh, you know that sort of happened right after your book got published. Um, I mean, uh, is this like a one-time fluke? <laughs> like, you know, is it is it Tom Cruise's stardom, you know, his, his charisma that drew people to the box office uh, everywhere else? I mean, I can understand if. Uh, American patriotism caused, you know, the film not to be released in China, right? But uh, in the future, I mean, do you see other films? How you, you talk about a specific formula, right? They have to recalculate and stuff like that. But like, uh, is, is it the star? Is it the topic? The film, right? Yeah, and then you also, uh, you know, show three Asian American films, right? Like Shang Chi, right? Uh, the the film directed by uh, uh, the director, right? Chloe Chan. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, that, that was like, not look, that was sort of looked down upon after she won the Oscars, right? And, and then, and then um, I mean, even before the pandemic, uh, sort of Asian Americans in film being shown internationally, Crazy Rich Asians, the big box office hit, United States, but then failed terribly in China uh, due to certain tastes by the Chinese audience, right? It's, oh, these people... Uh, the stars are not uh, Chinese and not handsome enough for Shang-Chi. The reason so, so a lot of people complain Simu Lu wasn't handsome enough, <laughs> but, you know, for, for reasons not, not to watch that particular film. But I mean, how can Hollywood itself, you know, bank on uh, a successful film without China's sort of like, uh, you know, the, the box office at all? I mean, James Cameron, I can understand because at that particular time, a lot of people in China, the box office, you know, counted on it, right? And then 3D technology at that time, he pushed it and there were a lot of box office like for, for the proceeds, right? On 3, 3D showings and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I foresee Avatar 2 being successful there, but how can other films sort of like tap in and then, uh, I don't know, get successful? Well, I, you know, like I said, so one way of, you know, the Hollywood only has two choices, right? You either um, um, 
recalibrate, you know, your box office expectations. So if you, uh, you know, if, you know, counting out China. So that that's one way of, of, of calculating it. And so that would affect the amount of budget you can put in, right? Because Hollywood films increasingly uh, receive 65% of revenue from overseas market. You know, in, in, in the past few decade or so, the Chinese market brought in, in, you know, real, we were talking about real actual revenue to Hollywood. So uh, in Hollywood, you have the choice to make. You either uh, make films that just completely sanitize without uh, any elements that will cause uh, a problem in China, and therefore you can continue your honeymoon there, or you, you know, do the story you want to do, um, but just you know leave it for the fate and see if you can open or, or not in China. So yeah, I mean, there's some choices to make. And there are certainly films that it have nothing to do with politics, right? These these films should open big. You know, the reason Top Guns wasn't able to do that, partly because, yeah, it's it's a, it it is a film about celebrating the American military, right? Uh, and so yeah, so really depending on you know how you calculate that and whether you really want to so for for, for instance for avatar the new avatar right it, it, that's a huge amount of uh, budget invested in making this film and and given that uh there there's no actual thematical or, or stylistic problem for this film to be distributed in china so so therefore this film can can have its chinese release and so that means the uh, James Cameron, his production company, will receive a windfall. So it's it's just a you know it's it's not a, a sad formula, but there are some big decisions to make for studio when they you know make these films for uh, China. Mark. Yeah, um, you did bring up the battle of Tianjin, um, like uh, not doing as well outside internationally. <clears throat> Um, a couple of years ago, The Wandering Earth, the massive box office in China itself, and then Netflix uh, bought it and then put it on their streaming platform, but then didn't promote it as much, yeah, even though <laughs> they spent money on it, right? Um, how can China fine-tune itself to get a outside international audience to, you know, consume their, you know, cinema more broadly? Again, I think you have. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So in comparison to 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 Hollywood, which kind of receives sixty five percent of the revenue from overseas market, uh, China, to the best, only receive up to five percent. So so yeah, no, you're right. So even Indian films, they can actually come come to to kind of receive uh, twenty five to thirty percent of revenues from overseas, right? So China is really way below, way behind in uh, garnering global uh, uh, recognition. Um, so um, how they can bypass that? They, they, they need to get over politics. Uh, they need to uh, make films that has a genuine universal appeal. So when you look at The Wandering Earth, right? Wandering Earth is really takes, uh, takes, a, takes a shot at America. It, it, it barely recognized America at all. Mm. So we're talking about this is a huge disaster. The world is about to end, right? Just, uh, you know, the sun or the whatever is, is about to collude, right? And and so China is the one who is rallying 
China's, you know, kind of a, a uh, and appear to, to be the leader, right, of this, uh, you know, group of, uh, of people who are um, trying hard to um, avert a disaster, right? So, so America is kind of a very lightly mentioned and discarded. So, so this kind of sentiment, you know, I doubt it was said well, uh, you know, and also it probably is not really uh, realistic too, right? Uh, you know, beyond the Chinese border. And so, so I think China needs to get over this kind of jingoistic, ethnocentric narrative. Uh, I really allowing in the films that has genuine kind of uh, universal uh, human connection to, to emerge. And not that Chinese filmmakers have never made these films. They did. In the 1990s, there's films, The To Live, right? Film My Concubine, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, but these are not the films that's promoted by the Chinese government. Uh, and but there are certain films, though, like these films that I talked about in my book, Chapter Seven. Uh, these are enormously popular, but but these films kind of deal with very local issues, right? So so it carries the so-called cultural discount, and so which means that uh, because it's it's you know it, it, when it cross border, it bears less relevance to the rest of the audience, so therefore people, it's hard for people to relate. So, and also there's a language barrier too, right? Because international audiences in general, they just don't want to watch subtitled films. Uh, and especially American audiences. Uh, so, you know, and there's also a particular way of storytelling in China that's pretty much rooted in the Chinese literary tradition. Uh, and it's kind of slow and, and wild sprawling, you know, there's not much of uh, um, uh, narrative economy and efficiency and so on and so forth. So it's just diff different kind of as film aesthetics. Uh, so, 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 so these all are, you know, part of the kind of barrier for the Chinese film industry to cross over. But, but ultimately, I think really uh, you, they need to get over, move beyond this kind of a competitive stand, making some genuine you know, a, a film of, of genuine human, uh, you know, kind of can connect with people uh, at an emotional level, and 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 I I don't see that in these uh, huge uh, propagandistic uh, blockbuster films coming out of China. Blockbusting films. Yeah. Uh, one of our attendees, Joyce uh, Kyokam, uh, says that she's actually helped the work on the Wandering Earth sequel that uh, is being developed right now, right? <laughs> uh, Ryan Smith has a question. Do you think Hollywood's desire for the Chinese market contributed to the death of the big budget comedy films? Uh, is it often said that comedies are the hardest film genre to translate? So, so the question is, is it, is it not? I didn't hear it very clear. So, so there aren't there many comedy well, films. Yeah. Um, what's a recent um, comedy film, American comedy film, that has like uh, massive success uh, recently in China that uh, you can happen to recall? Uh, you, you know, you're right. I mean, he's right. So the um, comedies is a you know it's a very specific to a particular culture. You know, humors don't translate well. Although it's hard to say these days, you know, have TikTok, you know, all these, all these kind of uh, snippets of comedies they translate well, or the anime and so, so forth. But but largely, humors are very locally kind of a bound, right? For instance, you know, if you watch Seinfeld, right, people even outside of New York might not get some of the humor, right? So yeah, certainly that that's 
you know, comedy does not sell uh, overseas, but comedy does not need a Chinese market because these are all the mid-budget, small-budget films. They're not blockbuster action, you know, marvels and superheroes. So they they're fine. They they can survive without the Chinese market. Uh, and you know, I think uh, some humors do also um, kind of get crossover. But 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 in general, yeah, it is. That's that's the case. Yeah, I think uh, one example is once again uh, crazy rich Asians. Some of that particular humor. So didn't that's interesting. Well, okay, no, no, crazy rich Asian, and I don't think uh, uh, it's it's necessarily not that funny. Um, and I, I I wouldn't call it as as a, a comedy. You know, the reason crazy rich Asian does not sell well, and I kind of talked about that in my book, uh, is uh, so because so I think it's a false equivalence to kind of identify Asian-American, a Chinese-American, uh, with the Chinese in China. Because the experiences are vastly different. You know, the cultural backgrounds are different. And, and, so, and so, so these issues, um, you know, American filmmakers explore in these Asian-American focus the film, which is very rare, actually, uh, might not be relevant to the, you know, the, the issue of uh, of uh, discrimination, uh, you know, um, um, a struggle, diversity, and so, so forth. These these are not the issues that, the, you know, the Chinese in China actually understand and can relate. So that's that's one thing. Kind of relevance is one thing. Identification is one thing. The other thing is, uh, if you talk about crazy rich Asians, have you seen crazy rich Chinese? So, in other words, the crazy rich Asians are not exotic enough for the Chinese because the you know the the, the riches in China are even crazier. <laughs> so, so it, it you know it doesn't look so too exotic or, or outlandish, and to actually have you know that kind of effect. Oh wow, that's funny, right? Um, I'd be actually interested in what this, this new movie. Uh, what was it called? It's a, the title is so long. Everything, everywhere. Oh yes, everything, what everywhere, all at once. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a mouthful, and that's that's a kind of interesting uh, you know film. But of course, you know it's, it's also very specifically pertaining to Asian American experience, right? So, you know, I I would be very surprised if um, people in China will kind of massively embrace this film. But on the other hand, this film actually uh, resonates, you know, with with my younger population, younger people, because then you know the, the certain parts of it that talks about the generational gap, right? So that has kind of a universal appeal too. So I'm pretty sure, you know, the Chinese youngsters uh, having the same uh, issue, right? How to negotiate with their parents uh, for their uh, expectations of stress and pressure and so on and so forth. Did the film get a Chinese release? I don't think so. Okay. But there aren't that many. So last year there was only 17 films were released in China. But we'll we have to verify it. Don't take my word for it. We'll, we'll okay. check and see if this film has is, is been uh, released in China. What has been the uh, reception of your book so far? Um, what has... you know, in, 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 in China and over here, you know, discussing the relationship. That's interesting. Uh, well, because the book just came out uh, this summer, right, mm-hmm. in, in July. Uh, it's kind of it takes time, um, you know. I, but but I know that uh, review will be coming out, and I know one review will be coming out at New York Times uh, book review, and YRB, um, and in in January I was told, 
uh, you know, reveals coming out in terms of China. Um, it's interesting because, um, you know, I received notes, emails, and so on and so forth from uh, some people, you know, a few people in China that actually have pirated copy in China. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I, you know, there's this, 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 this young, uh, you know, lady contacted me basically saying, okay, you know, I really like your book. And I saw this and I said, well, well, how did you get the book, right? So do you actually can purchase the book from Amazon to have it shipped to China? And she said, no, so it's available in this, uh, this e, I, uh, I think an ebook site, Z something. And, and then the next thing I know, uh, and there was a massive kind of a, a crackdown on, on the site. The site was taken off, apparently. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what the official reaction from China is. I really don't. You know, the, the book uh, really kind of take a historical view on the Sino-U.S. relationship. It describes, but it does not, it's critical, but it does not uh, kind of, uh, you know, denounce in the same way. But nevertheless, uh, it, it is taking, a, you know, quite a critical view of some of the practices, uh, um, um, you know, by, by the Chinese regulators. And it also kind of uh, uh, reveals, too, that the kind of uh, um, um, historical um, kind of a, a, a connection between the film industry and the U.S. government. So, so it's, it's you know, I, I would say it's it's a just sort of a objective, balanced approach. Ah, uh, Lisa's son says uh, thank you very much, Professor Zhu, for your analysis of Hollywood in China. Uh, wish you great success. Uh, if you haven't already talked about this topic so far, uh, they are a film fanatic and watch films both in English and Mandarin. Uh, watch both English and Mandarin film. Uh, you're right that some topics do not translate well cross-border or cross-culturally. However, there seems to be an emerging sense within the younger generation that films have to speak to human issues, but also culturally authentic. Uh, so uh, independent filmmakers are hoping to be more culturally authentic. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this movement about the Hollywood changing perspective. Thank you. I think it's, I guess one thing is is about uh, authentic culture. Right? What was the phrase again? Uh, culturally authentic yeah. film, right? Culturally authentic film. So yeah, that, that that's you know uh, you know the more more authentic. A lot of time, the barrier is is not about uh, um, kind of a larger emotional reactions. The barrier might just be, you know, certain specific instance in the story that might be kind of pertaining to a particular location, kind of geopolitical dynamic that might not be easily uh, uh, kind of understood across the border. But on the other hand, you do have a lot of uh, films from these minor uh, uh, countries, you know, from you know, you have all these incredibly moving Iranian films, Turkish films, right? And and they 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 do translate. They kind of uh, uh, they are they're able to connect with audiences. Although relatively small segment of audiences, I don't see these films. Or even though they garner awards, they will never be able to open broadly. Uh, so I think I would say these are kind of somewhat authentic, uh, culturally authentic film. They really address local. Uh, uh, conditions, issues, um, and, and, and do not, they do not pander. I think that, that probably is, is what, um, uh, what, what it was meant by culturally kind of authentic, 
Um, so, so I, I think, uh, you know, the other side of the coin is too that I think Hollywood should also try to make culturally authentic film instead of, uh, pendling to, uh, you know, the, the, the international market, particularly pendling to, uh, you know, the, the, the perceived China taste. In fact, um, the films that sell really well in China are not these co-product, co-produced film that has these kind of haphazard, uh, marginal China elements, right? It's the real, pure Hollywood films that has nothing to do with China. And these films are the real films that, that actually open big in, in China. So that actually, you know, attests to this notion of, of, of authentic too, because these are the real authentic Hollywood films, right? Not sure if I, I, I answered the question, but, but that's, that's my thought. Anybody does have last minute questions, you can type it in. I do want to make a, uh, a little comment. Um, it seems even though China had budget available, their special effects never seem to be up to the level of Hollywood film. It, it seems to be there, there, there's this drastic, you know, difference between <laughs> special effects. Even though they hire uh, Weta Digital to do their, you know, special effects, there seems to be a drastic difference. You can tell. I, I, I don't know why <laughs> that's the case <laughs> yeah in terms of you know technology and techniques uh and china still uh has a way to go they they have yet to to she can catch up but but you know i'm not too concerned i think sooner or later they're going to because the budget is there and they they can buy off talent they can buy off uh the creative team and special effects team you know for that matter uh so but 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 it will take some time um, and whatever money can buy, eventually they can get there. Uh, the, the real problem is, uh, you know, how to tell a good story. That's not something that you can just can be transported from Hollywood. Right. Uh, so, so that's the thing that, that we'll, we'll have to wait and, and see. Um, and, you know, uh, I think uh, in, in, in this regard, the less, Government control is the better, mm-hmm. right? You're going to have to let uh, people to uh, have this creative juice uh, flow freely without any uh, concerns for uh, protocol ramifications and, and, and whatnot, right? And you also have to let uh, filmmakers to explore what they really want to explore, not just making these, uh, you know, patriotic um, militant films, right? small-scale films, right, or authentic films, films that are really um, authentic to yourself, to the filmmakers, right? Yeah. Uh, one of our attendees, uh, Initial AD, uh, thanks you for this talk. Uh, could you speak about the moment in the early 2000s when films like Hero and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon were hugely popular in the U.S.? You probably covered this uh, in one of your chapters, yeah. Um. Interesting, but actually, I did not actually cover that. I kind of mentioning in, in passing, I actually did not cover that. The, the reason being, you know, I've been doing research on Chinese cinema for so long, two decades, right? Um, and I've written about that on various occasions in the last decade or two. So I decided I'm, I'm going to move beyond that because there's just been so much talk about, a lot of attention has been paid to heroes and fortune type hidden dragons. Uh, and, and all the earlier Chinese new wave films. So I kind of moved on. You know, my focus on Chinese, uh, film industry of Chinese cinema is really on the mainstream commercial films. These are 
kind of a middle budget, small budget film, but they uh, you know speak to to the Chinese audiences. And the reason I do that is thinking, you know, uh, if we, like I said, if we really wanted to understand China and you have to know what the Chinese audiences are watching, actually, right? It would be very elegant of us not just dismissing them. Oh, these just little commercial affairs. Well, they're not. You know, there's something must ticked for the audiences. Um, so in terms of hero, in, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, of course, is the first uh, film that kind of broke out this this uh, conventional wisdom of audiences just don't are not receptive to to the subtitle films. You know, guess what it it did? In my audience, it becomes it becomes a sleeper hit. Right, uh, so it just become hugely popular when 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 Sony distributed this film. They didn't expect this to be big, but it become big, right? And and part of it, I think it's 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 novelty too. And part of it, is, it's really very interesting storytelling, great, and a, just great, you know, casting. You know, Michelle Yeoh was just fantastic, uh, and 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 Michelle Yeoh has being in, in so many in a film she's a real actually a star i i think she's just as good as you know a lot of the hollywood big stars um and and so so yeah there's many reasons why this film did well although again this film did not do well in china because it defies the traditional expectation of what a, a martial arts film is supposed to be right uh so so this 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 kind of an interesting um uh, Kind of disconnect, right? When a film opens big in in Hollywood, but it does not open big in in, in China. So in terms of so and, and so so that is also the time. Uh, so that actually not that that's interesting because the only uh, film that's crossed over is the these kind of kung fu martial arts film. Historically, it was the kung fu film, right? It was you know Hong Kong, uh, the Shaw Studios, Golden Harvest that they made and distributed and promoted Bruce Lee films, right? And then Jackie Chang, you know, these are the Kung Fu. So the genres that uh, pertain native to the Chinese are Kung Fu, and then later on to martial arts. So, so Ang Lee essentially can revive these old traditional genre and in martial arts. And then uh, Zhang Yimou came along riding the wave of that fever, right? So Hero came out. Although Hero uh, received a kind of controversial, uh, conflicting critical appraisals, right? Some said, oh, it's a fantastic film, but some said, oh, you know, there's just propagandistic, right? So again, that also just kind of, it's it's interesting, uh, you know, because of our just a natural aversion to to any film that's coming out of China, that, that thinking, oh, there must be, you know, have some kind of propaganda, uh, 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 in, in by nature, right? So, so, but, 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 but overall, though, uh, you can say that the kind of films that have done well uh, caters to this particular niche genre, or sometimes I'll say it's kind of martial arts ghetto. So that that's where where the Chinese films are, martial arts ghetto. So you have yet to see kind of a, a real A class film that can open open wide internationally. I want to thank Dr. Zhu again for a wonderful presentation. Uh, you can purchase her book, Hollywood China, online from the New Press website uh, for $27.99, uh, also from Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles and other book uh, store websites. Uh, the link is available on Dr. Zhu's talk webpage. Um, as I mentioned, Dr.
Dr. Zhu has previously spoken at the Institute. You can watch uh, some of her past talks on our website and YouTube channel. Uh, with that, uh, enjoy your weekend and remember to be an upstander if you see a uh, fellow person in need. I want to thank Dr. Zhu uh, for a great talk and see you soon. <laughs> thank you everybody thank you. else thank for you. joining us tonight. Uh, have a good rest, Dr. Zhu. Thank you. Bye-bye.